to The Commercial Disco, the only show dedicated to exploring the great stories and people driving Australia's unique innovation and tech landscape. Now over to your host, James Riley. Welcome to The Commercial Disco. We're sitting virtually with Larry Marshall, the Chief Executive of CSIRO. Welcome, Larry. Thanks, James. Pleasure to be here. Look, we're going to be covering a lot today because obviously there is a lot going on in the world in science, but there's just a lot going on in the world generally, isn't there? So I'm going to start, though, just by putting it to you that the coronavirus crisis has put a spotlight on science in a positive way. And I think we've, particularly in Australia, perhaps not in every country in the world, but in Australia, we've had a terrific response from the public. And I think it's been a a sort of a demonstrated trust in institutions, if you like. We felt good about our institutions. Obviously, CSIRO is one of our more important institutions across the landscape. So we had challenges in science and commercialization and the way the ecosystem works together. So how do we ensure that this kind of goodwill in that community can be extended into the future beyond this current crisis reflection? Yeah, it's a great question, James, because if you could bottle the goodwill that we're seeing and we have seen over the past couple of months and keep it through good times as well as through the crisis, you'd have a game changer for innovation in this country. I think that's your key point. If I think back 100 years, you know, Australia coming out of the First World War and a crisis like that, that was sort of the catalyst that created the CSIRO in the first place. And there's a lot of similarities. You know, the thinking back then was, hey, we need to really embrace science and technology and engineering and try and use it to kind of reinvent our situation to make the future better than the past. And that mindset of science seeing every challenge as an opportunity not just to be overcome, but actually to be turned around and turned into some kind of advantage. And I think that's the key insight. It's Crisis and opportunity really are sort of opposite sides of the same coin of disruption. So I guess the extension to that, and this is where is one of those questions that you probably won't love to jump at, but we are literally in the middle of the preparation of the federal budget. Now, you don't have control over that federal budget, although I'm sure you have your own opinions about what might go into it. But at this stage, this crisis has been the payoff for our investments in science in the past. Are you expecting budget largesse? Are you expecting budget cuts? The government's got a lot of competing priorities. So how do you think this is going to pan out? Yeah, look, I mean, we're facing into a massive budget deficit because of all of the need for government to support the public, uh, industry and, and people, keeping us safe. And that's a huge cost. And obviously, it's got to be paid back. So I think it'll be a tough budget, but it's a tough situation that we're coming out of. I think the key for us is to focus on how do we get back to a place, not just how do, not just how do we get back to where we were. But I think we want to do that. I think that would be a shame, actually. I think we want to figure out how do we use this whole crisis and everything that we've learned, like the massive acceleration of digital, you know, digital transformation has really enabled us to work from home through this. I think there's a lot of those nuggets that we want to keep And in a sense, use that crisis and that disruption to redefine our future in a better way. So maybe we will travel less. Maybe we will do more Zoom meetings or other video type meetings. Maybe we'll learn to do a lot more digitally because we've had to. 
So there's some some benefits that come out of that where I think rather than going back to normal, we'll go back to a new normal that's actually better than the old one. So when we look at facilities like the Geelong Biomedical Research Level 4 lab down there, is that, I've got that right. Yeah, there. it's one of five or six in the world. It's quite unique. All right, and that facility has just received some additional funding um, that I think was not necessarily in the pipeline. Yeah, it's just been, sorry, I should back up a step, James. The facility's been around a long time, 30 or more years. But when we started our current strategy back in 2016, we saw the opportunity and the need, frankly, it, it, had, it had been created to deal with animals and animal health, you know, protecting Australia from foot and mouth, that sort of thing. And we realised that actually diseases aren't discriminating anymore between animals and humans. So we needed to reposition it much more firmly into human health or actually what we call One Health, basically stop differentiating between whether it's an animal disease or a human disease because too many are crossing over and really look holistically at solving the kind of One Health problem. So that was the shift that we did in 2016. We actually created a health business unit as well, specifically to deal with the challenges of digital disruption and the opportunities in health using digital, but also the challenges of physical disruption like pandemics. And so we're in a much better position to jump on this crisis because we did those changes back in 2016. I mean, I'm presuming that specific challenges now that we have suit that facility very well and suit the other investments you've made in, into digital. So how do you kind of double down on that? And even if we take a step back and look at that Innovation and Science Australia, one of their recommendations of a couple of years ago was to have the health as a national challenge. So how, how do we double down on that? Yeah, so the ACDP, got to be careful not to say ACDC because that's taken, that, that facility is kind of the part of the front line of Australia's sort of biosecurity defence. But one of the other big changes we made, and this goes to your point about innovation, was in our manufacturing group. Because it's, it's one thing to protect against a pandemic or biosecurity threats. It's one thing to measure and test a vaccine. But at the end of the day, someone's actually got to manufacture it. And we realised there was kind of a gap in Australia's system in terms of the ability to go from invention, you know, on the lab bench to innovation in terms of a vaccine. So we built this manufacturing capability in our manufacturing business to much more rapidly be able to go from an idea, like a vaccine candidate, to scale it up, scale up the proteins and the other bio um, biophysical properties to a point where you could actually support phase one or phase two clinical trials and actually have a hope of getting something into manufacturing. And I just also say, if you think about the two sides, you know, TRL zero, the, the invention, you know, the idea, and TRL nine or 10, where a manufacturer's in production, most of the R&D system plays down here in TRL zero to three, and that's where they should play. Syro kind of plays a little bit in that space, but more in the middle of how do we get these amazing inventions? How do we get them over the valley of death into, into some kind of manufacturable capability? And finally, I'd say it's the manufacturers that actually do the heavy lifting there. Without them, you know, nothing any of us did would actually be able to deliver impact because someone's actually got to take it, build it, get it to market and be responsible for it. And that's the reason this teamwork is so important right now, James, because you're seeing manufacturers like CSL step up, lean into the crisis and try and work with the R&D system to make sure that we actually will have an Australian supply of the vaccine. 
Yeah, I mean, it's quite extraordinary. I wasn't really going to go here, but I'll just put it to you. The National COVID Response, the NCCC Commission, the Manufacturing Task Force doesn't spend a lot of time talking about the kind of advanced manufacturing that you've just described. It spends a lot of time talking about gas and energy prices for our manufacturers, which was kind of neither here nor there for the, a manufacturer of vaccines. I wonder, as, as a broad commentary, you know, when we talk about manufacturers, it would also seem to me they didn't talk about IoT, they didn't talk about 5G. There was very, I don't think there was any mention of artificial intelligence or machine learning, all things that I would have thought are kind of imperative to a, a modern, advanced manufacturer, you know, across a broad range of sectors, maybe outside of the, you know, the, the oily rag end of things. But even in car manufacturing, most of the IP is in, is in your uh, information technologies. Yeah, it's so true. So much of the value of a car today is in the semiconductor chips, the, the processors, and also the software that runs on them. You know, I grew up, my, my dad drove a Holden. I love Holdens, <laughs> but we got to move on. You know, it would be a shame if we went back to manufacturing kind of old school or old world products. You know, the other change that we made in Cyrus manufacturing was we recognised that there's this ability to leapfrog to truly agile manufacturing using digital, using AI, using predictive analytics, using 3D printing, and, and even biological and quantum biological processes to actually grow uh, structures that can be part of manufacturing, almost like self-assembling capabilities that you've probably read about in science fiction books. So that vaccine pipeline capability, the reason we didn't do it in our health business, we actually deliberately chose to do it separately in our manufacturing business was we thought there was a bigger story there about the idea of manufacturing becoming truly agile, meaning you used to build a factory to make cars, now you build a factory to make almost anything. And you have the equipment, the technology to rapidly shift from making one type of product to another because you've leapfrogged that using using technology. And I think that's the opportunity here. If we can come back smarter There'll be a push to make commodity products just because they're a sovereign source. But gee, it would be better if we had the ability to make almost anything we needed in a pinch, but focus on the really high value, high margin products that are uniquely Australian to give us a differentiation. And I think that's where truly agile manufacturing supported by technology can really make a difference here. Yeah. I mean, the way you describe it, it's very exciting. I find it very exciting. We've got... Um the areas that the CSIRA has been involved in, uh, the kind of antivirus, the vaccine manufacturer, or you look at space, there's so much uh, you know, nanosatellites being manufactured and we have some capability there. We're about to build a launch capability in rockets. I think Gilmore Space is, is sort of on target to do a commercial launch in the next couple of years. Quantum computing, I know Kathy Foley just did some work, but we've got some some game there in manufacturing, none of which is kind of described in our... COVID Commission report on manufacturing. It just seems like there's a, a bit of a gap there. Maybe we need to lean in there, James, you and I. Well, that's what we're, that's what we're trying to do right now. <laughs> um, okay, we'll move on from that. I guess I did have a, a question in relation to the budget cycle around people and skills. Firstly, I guess time will tell whether you will be fully budgeted to maintain current staffing levels. Have you got any indication on whether there's any reason to think that the CSIRO might need to downsize? 
Look, I, I'm optimistic, but James, you know me, I'm, I'm always an optimist. You, you couldn't be an entrepreneur or an innovator if you, if you weren't. So, so I'm optimistic. Part of the reason for that, Sorrow has grown its external revenue significantly over the last five or so years. So we have well over 500 million of external revenue in the organization now. And whilst there will be some disruption to that, I've been surprised how many companies have leaned into us to say, you know, we need this or we need that. We need you to be thinking about the future. We want to come out of this better. So we've had a lot of engagement, which surprised me, frankly, during the crisis, given how hard it is to engage. We've had a lot of engagement from companies that are really starting to think in a better way, a more positive way about the future. So I'm actually hopeful that that will help fuel us through this. And not just us, but if the if the broader system is thinking about how to use this crisis to come out better, then I think it will naturally mean more support for R&D, more support for science, provided science delivers. And that's, of course, the other side of the coin, right? If we don't deliver, then, you know, we don't deserve to be supported. We've got to earn that right, you know, every day. Right, another one on people, and this is really goes to collaboration and mainly international collaboration, but you know, obviously you've got a fairly porous community of people who are coming in from other institutions around the world and, and your guys are going out. So what sort of impact will that have if there's a longer-term shutdown on, on that very close, you know, physically proximate collaborations? You know, it will impact our global collaboration to be sure. Fortunately, again, in, during the current strategy, strategy 2020, we created some international outposts like the Silicon Valley office, like the Singapore presence and the China presence. So we have people on the ground now in those countries that can engage in those ecosystems. So it keeps us connected. But SORO draws a lot of its strength from global collaboration, which you can do a certain amount of that digitally. But in the end, you're right, you do need to be able to physically get together, particularly for the sort of physical science stuff. And, and that's going to be hard because I, I don't think we'll see international travel coming back this year based on just the way the rest of the world is struggling to deal with this crisis. So that'll be a challenge. Just as a, as a general statement, without wanting you to predict the future, given the global trade tensions have kind of spilled over into the coronavirus response tensions and all, of the, all that goes with it, and, and we already had something of a, a technological, you know, the beginnings of a Cold War going on. In relation to those collaborations, is there a danger that, you know, we fracture into blocks, that the relationships that you have with China, and I know that they're very long-standing and deep with the CSIRO and the Chinese Academy of Sciences, is there a danger that those fracture? And what would that mean if they did? James, it's, it's funny, you know, the, the Chinese Academy of Science is near the top in the world now in terms of its academic excellence, which is remarkable because 30 years ago they were, weren't on the radar and they've really they've gone very hard to, to strive for a very high academic standard. And we try to collaborate with people in the world who share our aspiration of using science to make the future better. In China, we really focus around climate, the environment, remediation of soil and water and then work on truly global problems like climate change or this pandemic. So China, within 24 hours of me reaching out to my counterpart to get information on the virus, they gave us full genetics, genotype, phenotype, basically everything that we asked for to help us understand what we're dealing with and how to fight it. So that's an example of why that really deep, long history of collaboration is so critical. And that got us right to the front 
line of fighting the disease. The thing that's funny to me is if I look back 30 years, you know, China came from here to sort of top of the pyramid in terms of science. I asked my counterpart, why do you work with us? Because they're huge. There's 130 or more thousand people in that organization now. And he laughed and said, yes, but 30 years ago, you know, you were the huge one and we were small and we don't forget that friendship, that relationship kind of working together. And I think, you know, you, you can do a lot of things, but you can't change history. You can't, you know, create time. So four decades or more working together and solving a lot of challenges like this one, I think there's a deeper connection there. And I think more broadly around the world, those connections, we have the connection with the US in the same way. I think science does tend to transcend the politics and the, the, the geopolitics because if you're working on a global problem, by definition, you can't solve it if you don't work with global players. So I think we just have to figure out how to navigate this because we know the outcome will, will be better if we do. Yeah, it uh, certainly won't be straightforward, I wouldn't have thought, but um, you know, just given the political realities, but you know, to the extent that it does, yes, uh, I guess science does transcend the day-to-day politics. But I don't know, it seems like, it seems like a challenge, but we'll see how you go. Larry, I wanted to ask you a couple of questions about engagement with the startup sector and, and also the necessarily talking about spinning out CSIRO companies, but, but certainly getting this entrepreneurialism infused into some of the CSIRO workforce. I'm talking about the ON program, which I think the funding was coming to a close this financial year, so soon. I mean, I, I guess the money has, the final program's been run. So what are the options around maintaining the outcomes of that program? How will you refund it if indeed you are going to refund it? Or how will you, you know, design something else to replace it? James, you know, as we've talked about before, ON's had stellar outcomes. I mean, if you compare it to the US I-Corps program, which was kind of the original science accelerator in the world, it outperforms that in financial terms, almost three to one in terms of, you know, how successful the companies are when they graduate through it. But actually, the one that the stat that always amazed me, it has 50% greater diversity, 50% greater penetration into the sector than iCorps has with less than half the funding per, per company, per capita. So it's there's something very special about that program that's made it successful. And I think what it was is the diversity is designed in kind of in our DNA because core to our strategy, we know that you can't have innovation without diversity. So there's no metrics, no targets. It's just designed in the way we thought about the program. And in a sense, it's because we didn't design it to create startups. We didn't design it to create financial outcomes. We got those and got really good ones. We designed it to kind of change the way scientists thought, to do a culture change. And because almost every university across the country and many government agencies as well participated in it, I think that cultural journey has happened. I think over the last four years, we've really got scientists to think differently about the power of science and how to actually how to actually get something from it, how to get a, an outcome. So its work may actually be done, and that's the question. I think the crisis, you're quite right, raises the question, do we have to rethink it? Is there another... Um, is there another life to on, another incarnation of on that might be necessary to help us get out of the crisis? And we're working through that at the moment. But the original idea was fund it for four years, see if we make a culture change, and then reassess, maybe do something different. If I can just say, too, there's a theme to all of these, I think, innovation questions where 
how do you think differently about the future and use that, that vision, that where the market could be, that market vision to drive your science, to actually create that reality, to create that vision? I mean, that's what the Australian National Outlook was all about. Let's think of a better future and then figure out how science can help us get there. I think that's the culture change we need rather than we're going to do this great science and be world-leading inventors or whatever, maybe start from the other end and say, we're going to solve these really big problems, these big national challenges. How can science help us? So more of a market-driven innovation, which is the way startups do it, right? Rather than a, rather than a science push, more of a, more of a market pull. Does that make sense? It makes sense to me. I, I would consider that kind of quite non-controversial, but I'm sure that there's people whose hair would catch on fire as they hear you say that. And I think you've probably been, uh, you know, that's been a mantra of yours for, for five years, I think, since you've come back. So just to close off on the ON program, I mean, without labouring the point, are you saying that that's mission accomplished as far as cultural change goes, thinking of impact rather than simply the, the science itself? You know, time will tell. I guess one indicator that something changed is when we built on, it was very unique. There was really not much in the academic sector in terms of that type of program. And I'm talking not just about accelerators, but accelerator, market connection, you know, sorry, 3,000 customers to the table, the national lab capability to kind of turn these ideas into prototypes. It's quite a unique offering. But if I look end of last year, before this crisis, I think there were like 37 accelerators across the country kind of leaning into doing what we were calling deep tech or, or science. And so clearly that, that's a change. I think your big question we're wrestling with now is will those 37 continue post-crisis or will the crisis mean they, they go away? I think that's what we're trying to figure out next. You know, what's the next card to play if there is another card? Yeah. Okay. Look, I'm conscious of time. So uh, just a couple more quick ones. They're actually really big questions. And so I don't want to say the quick questions, but as we're rethinking the the sort of the ecosystem, how the different parts of the ecosystem play together, should we be rethinking everything? I'm wondering whether it's time that there is a, a level of consolidation around just the numbers of CRCs and growth centers and institutes and you know the CSIRO itself and there is a from the outside I'm an outsider it seems a very fragmented approach to to building what are generally kind of integrated sectors these days what do you think about the idea of consolidation so i think you've got to ask that question after crisis because it's it's a natural consequence of trying to manage your way out trying to manage your finances manage your focus because Digging your way out of a crisis only happens if you're really focused in a singular way on, on that outcome. So I think it's the right question to ask. If you look at the UK, they have followed that model. They've done a major consolidation to get a bit more alignment and a bit more focus in the system. And I know that various people are looking at the UK model. The other one that's really interesting is Canada. I tend to look to Canada more than I look to the US or the UK or, or anywhere because it's in my mind, it's the closest to us in terms of similar culture, similar population size, similar resources-based economy. And Canada has somehow got nearly 40% of their companies, especially the SMEs, doing new-to-world innovation. And in Australia, it's less than 2%. That's something to aspire to if we can figure out how the Canadians did it. And role clarity 
really being explicit about who does what and why, their system does look more aligned than many innovation systems in the world. I know we're, we're talking to, I talk to my counterpart quite frequently who runs the National Science Foundation in Canada. We talk about things like, what are we going to do about bushfires? Common problem that we share together. Should we figure out a, a national challenge that we both work on, like we do on climate change? So an, a challenge is a great way to align us to the same outcome. So to finish, there's two ways to do consolidation. One is the way that the UK did it, where you bring everything together. The other way is to say, you know what, we're going to work on these three things. And you said it before. I think it was an Innovation Oz recommendation or a, an ISA recommendation. We're going to work on these challenges, you know, bushfires, droughts, pandemics. We're going to identify them as national challenges. And, you know, there'll be sort of lighthouses to bring us together to have us focus on the outcomes of solving those challenges. And that way you don't have to rearrange everything. It's the carrot approach rather than the stick approach. I think that'd be worth looking at too. Interesting what you're saying about Canada. I think we had quantum physicist Michael Bierce talking to us last week and was also talking about Canada and its success with deep tech startups, particularly around Waterloo, I think, in Ontario. Okay, look, finally, there are a whole bunch of other questions, Larry Marshall, I would like to be asking you today, but can't do it. I guess as, to finish off, and this is probably an annoying question, I don't know, but you came from a, a very different background, and we've talked about this before for a CSIRO chief, having spent the time that you did in Silicon Valley and being in very commercial startups and ending up in venture capital before you, you took this role. So I guess you look at the landscape now and you look at the landscape when you came in, I'm wondering what's, what you're seeing that's different and what you would do differently. I mean, I have no doubt that there's been a lot of challenges along the way and some great successes, but what would you do differently from the get-go if you had your time again? <laughs> Yeah, honestly, <laughs> not not much. <laughs> but but that's me. I, I'm I'm not much of one for regrets. So no, I, I probably wouldn't change anything actually. And I think even the painful bits that we went through, you, you kind of got to do that because if if you don't have some pain or a crisis, you don't get the catalyst to really change. So, you know, it is painful to go through. I, I might go harder in some areas than we did, but the thing is. Leadership is, is often about disappointing people at a rate that they can accept. And sometimes you exceed that rate and then you've got to back off because you've got to take people on the journey with you. But no, I, I, probably not much that I'd change. I think going forward, how do we build on the value of all that change? Because Sorrow, I think, is in a much better place now to really act on these crises. So When's the last time a prime minister reached out to CSIRO, first call, hey, go give me a science and technology plan to recover from bushfires? Actually, you know what? Let's make it broader. Let's look at the whole resilience area, the whole disruption area around floods and fires and other impacts like that. That's where the organisation was when it was created 100 years ago. That's where we should be. And it's really gratifying that our prime minister and others, our government, looks at us to step in and really help the nation, you know, navigate their way through these crises. I want to see us doing more of that because that's what we're all about. All right, Larry Marshall, we might leave it. Thank you very much. I must say your description of leadership as being about disappointing people at a rate they can accept makes leadership sound so appealing. <laughs> <laughs> I, um, I really appreciate you being on the Commercial Disco and uh, we'll catch up again soon. 
James, really, you do so much for us, for this country and innovation. Just, I'm really glad you're there and, and thank you. I appreciate it. Okay, good on you. We hope you enjoyed this episode of The Commercial Disco. Please like, subscribe and leave a five-star review wherever you heard us. And head on over to our website, innovationoz.com, to check out our latest news and reviews focused on tech, innovation and policy. And reach out on our social media to ask any questions or be a guest on the show. Until the next time, this is The Commercial Disco... Wishing you a great week ahead.